I encourage you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 9. We are resuming our study in this glorious book, Romans 9 through 11. We'll be in for a couple months. And so we come this morning to the first section, Romans 9, verses 1 through 13. This is God's word. Paul writes, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Amen. This is God's word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask, us, ask him to help us as we study his word. Father, this is a difficult text. It is hard in some ways to understand. It is hard to receive, to believe, to accept. Would your spirit come and help us? Help us to grasp its meaning. Help us, Lord, to live in the light of its truth. Help us to submit ourselves to your word, even when we don't understand it fully, even when it doesn't make sense to our finite minds. Would you graciously use your word as a sharp two-edged sword, as a hammer that shatters rock? Would you use it as the rain that settles down on the grass and grows us up in grace and in knowledge? Lord, we pray in Jesus' name that you would transform us by your truth and by your grace. We pray it. Amen. Next weekend, I will be preaching at the Bible Conference of Woodruff Road Presbyterian Church in Greenville, South Carolina. Some of you remember uh, Steve and Wendy Wilkinson. Uh, that is the congregation where they are members. And so I'll be having dinner with them and, and we'll certainly pass along uh, our greetings uh, to them as a congregation. My theme for the conference is going to be two-handed theology. 
Uh, two-ended theology, it's a, a phrase that I've, I've gotten from, uh, I once heard uh, R.C. Sproul Jr. say this. He said, every pastor, and I would, I would argue every Christian, needs two hands, on the one hand and on the other hand, all right? It, it's true, uh, and it's true because we are so prone to see either ors where the Bible presents to us theological and practical both ands, or we might say neither nors, right? Like marriage, so in theology and life, what God has joined together, we must not separate. Just like you need a nut and a bolt, right, to put something together, to build something. So we are called to hold together truths that seem on appearance to be even opposites, right? We're called to walk that balance beam, to avoid the, the ditches on both sides of the road. Uh, we often run into those ditches out of seeking to run away from another ditch, don't we? All right, we don't want to fall into that extreme, and so we're going to get as far away as possible as we can, and we end up falling in the extreme on the other side. We have an example of a two-handed truth, even in our purpose statement, don't we? We exist to pursue transformation by truth and grace. By truth and grace together, we say. We say that because we understand that it's possible to know the truth intellectually, but to be unchanged by it. Until the grace of God opens our eyes and softens our heart, all of the truth in the world that you hear will be like grass seed thrown upon a parking lot. Truth and grace transform us. And therefore, we as a congregation desire to, to speak the truth because it's truth that transforms. But we always want to speak the truth in love, imitating our gracious God as instruments in his hands and the lives of his elect. Now, one of the both ends, one of the, the two-handed twins and pairs that I'll be looking at uh, in Greenville next weekend is a, a, a two-handed pair that we even see in our text this morning. It is the, the twin truth of election and evangelism. Election and evangelism. Now, now, we know, don't we, that it is so easy to become unbalanced with regard to these two truths and to fall into one ditch or the other. Many Christians around the world reject the biblical truth of election, of predestination, in part because they are convinced that the Bible teaches the necessity of evangelism. Right? It commands us to evangelize. And, and so they assume that if, if God has chosen some to be saved— then there's no point in sharing the gospel, so therefore election cannot be true. Or they think this, that if you believe in predestination, you will lose all motivation, all incentive to evangelize. What's the point? God's already chosen folks. And so they reject election out of hand because they cling so firmly, rightly, to the necessity of evangelism. Now, unfortunately, we who embrace election sometimes tend to help them into their ditch because they see us running and in, falling into the other ditch on the other side, right? Rejecting evangelism, ignoring evangelism, even believing evangelism isn't necessary, right? We justify their stereotype and we 
give them reasons to keep thinking wrongly about both election and evangelism. Well, here in Romans chapter 9, Paul is moving into a new section in his letter. And he shows us in the passage that we've read this morning that it is absolutely possible, desirable, and necessary to hold together tightly with two hands both truths, the doctrine of election, and the necessity of an evangelistic heart and lifestyle. I want us to see two things today from our text. First, I want you to see Paul's compassion in his evangelism. And secondly, I want you to see Paul's conviction of and his confidence in God's election. So Paul's compassion in his evangelism and Paul's conviction of and confidence in God's election. First, Paul's compassion in his evangelism. Before we jump into this text and begin this section, it's important to remember how we got here and why we're here. Why is Romans 9 through 11 in the book of Romans? Well, you remember in chapters 1 through 3, hopefully, that Paul showed us that whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, whether you are biologically descended from Abraham or not, everyone is sinful. Everyone is under God's wrath and curse, deserving of his judgment. And then in chapters 4 to 8, Paul declared that Jew and Gentile, are saved in exactly the same way, by grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. Faith unites us to Jesus and his death and his resurrection for justification and sanctification, right? For forgiveness of sins, for freedom from the penalty of sin and freedom from the power of sin. So that though sin still indwells us, We know that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are free from sin's penalty. We are declared righteous in Jesus Christ, and we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. So we might grow more and more day by day, week by week, year by year, in newness of life, walking according to God's word and walking in the assurance that is ours as those who have been loved with an everlasting love, nothing able to separate us, from the love of God in Jesus Christ. That's how Paul ended chapter eight. And so when you come to the end of chapter eight in Romans, you're at the the top of the mountain, right? It's a spiritual high, a spiritual mountaintop. And and you assume that that Paul is gonna jump right into what we see in chapter 12, the, the imperatives, the commands. In light of all the grace that we've heard about in chapters one to eight, here is how we ought to live. But that's not what he does. Why is it? Why is it that that Paul jumps here into Romans 9, 10, and 11 to talk about Israel and the church? He does it because the end of Romans 8 raises a serious and a very practical question for the apostle Paul, a very theological concern and a very practical concern. And it's this, if nothing can separate God's people from his love in Jesus— And if the gospel is to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, then why is it that so many Jews have rejected the Messiah? Why is it that Jews have not en masse received Jesus as the Christ? That is the question that Paul is grappling with. Have God's promises failed? 
And if they have, then what hope do we Gentiles have? Chapters 9 to 11 may look to you like a parenthesis, but they are actually foundational for Paul's purposes in this letter and are the key to understanding the whole of God's history of redemption, the plan of redemption, his eternal plan. He gives us the answers here in these chapters. Now, Paul's going to end these three chapters with one of the richest doxologies in all the Bible, but that's not how he begins. He begins in the deepest of grief, doesn't he? Look at verse one. He writes this, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. In these words, we see Paul's heart of compassion, his heart of, of evangelism, his desire that the Jews would be saved. He's profoundly pained by the fact that the majority of Jews in his day had rejected the Christ, had rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And so he says his sorrow is great. His, his anguish is unceasing. And in case anyone doubts the sincerity of his sorrow, right, he affirms it three times, positively, negatively, and by appealing to his conscience and the Holy Spirit. In chapter 10, verse 1, he's going to exclaim that his heart's desire and his prayer for the Jews is that they would be saved. Here in verse 3, we see the depth of that desire, the extent of his love. Do you remember the story perhaps in, in, in Exodus where Israel bowed down to the golden calf? And afterwards, do you remember that Moses, in Exodus 32, verse 32, he said, Lord, if you're not going to forgive your people, Blot my name from the book of life. Well, Paul here is being very mosaic, isn't he? Verse three, he is saying and expressing this hypothetical wish that if it were at all possible, if it could save the Jews, which he knows it's not possible, he knows it wouldn't save the Jews, but if it could, he could wish, he would willingly forsake his own salvation. He would be willingly accursed, anathema, separated from Christ. That's how intense his love and his compassion is for the lost Jews. And now his grief and his, his anguish are amplified by the fact of all the privileges that the Jews enjoy. They've rejected God's grace in spite of, in the face of, so many advantages. You see them there in verses 4 and 5. They're Israelites. They bear the name of, uh, of, of Jacob when he wrestled with God and was called Israel. They're the adopted people of God, sons and daughters of God, whom he called out of Egypt and led through the wilderness and brought into the promised land. They experienced the glory of God, the fiery pillar, the pillar of cloud, the, the ark of the covenant, the, the dwelling of God upon the tabernacle and the temple they're heirs of the covenants with Abraham and, and Israel through Moses and, and David. They have the law of God given to them. There at Mount Sinai, they have the temple worship that pointed them every day, every year to the Lamb of God who takes away sins, who gives them access into the presence of a holy God. They have all the promises given to all the fathers of the faith down through the centuries. And most importantly, Paul says, 
From their race has come the Christ, Jesus, who is fully human according to the flesh. He is a Jew, but he's also fully God. He is God over all, blessed forever. Paul's most explicit declaration of the deity of Jesus is here. And so in rejecting Jesus, he's, he's saying the Jews have rejected their God and all of this fills Paul with a deep and abiding grief, a sorrow and an anguish. You see the compassion of his, of his evangelistic heart. Right? You see the, the depth of his sorrow and the longing that the lost would be saved. And so it forces us, doesn't it, to ask the question, what do we think? What do you think about the loss? How do you feel about those who don't know Jesus? What is your posture toward them? Right on the heels of our missions festival, the flags are still up. What do you feel toward those in all the nations and even here who don't know the Lord Jesus? How easy it is for our hearts to grow hard toward those who are outside of Jesus Christ. And perhaps it's because we think, well, they hate us. But didn't the Jews hate Paul and persecute Paul? And yet his heart is filled with sorrow, filled with anguish at their unbelief, filled with compassion as he labored for their conversion. And so should our heart be as we pursue the lost, seeking to gather them in, to know Jesus Christ, sharing the gospel with them. There's a word here, isn't there? Particularly for our parents. Parents in this congregation who understand what it is to have children who've rejected the faith. Parents, I cannot read these words, right, without thinking of those of you whose, whose children have, have abandoned the faith or, or perhaps not even so much abandoned it and rejected it as just sort of, they're ignoring it, right? It's more an apathy than a, than a resistance you know, positively and, and, and antagonistically. It's just an apathy. They just don't care. And yet you've poured so much into their life. You've taught them. You've raised them. You've lived before them. Your hearts are filled with this anguish, with this grief. And Paul would be the first one to say to you, the sorrow that you feel for your unbelieving children, it is right. It is good. He'd be the first to weep with you. He would say, if you didn't feel that way, it would be wrong because these are your children. Parents, God's word affirms the way you feel. And you are to us a beautiful illustration, right? You are to this church a beautiful illustration of Paul's evangelistic heart, of his compassion. Because this is the way we all ought to feel about those who are lost in our life, especially those into whom we pour our lives, whom we pray for, whom we share and give so many opportunities to know Jesus. So parents, I would, I would just exhort you to see the comfort in these words of Paul. See the compassion of Paul and know that your tears that you shed for your children, they are right and they are good. There's also a warning here, isn't there? Particularly to our children, to you children, to you youth who are growing up in this church. You live in Mississippi, the buckle of the Bible Belt, right? You are in Pear Orchard Presbyterian Church, Jackson, Mississippi, all these great PCA churches, right? You're in the PCA. You have grown up perhaps 
coming to worship, even if it were three out of every four, two out of every four Sundays. You come to Sunday school. You go to youth group. You've been to vacation Bible school. Children, you, maybe you go to RYM, right? You go on mission trips. You go to college. You go to RUF, perhaps. You have so many privileges, so many advantages. Maybe you've memorized the Children's Catechism, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, Bible verses. You sat with your family at family worship. You've watched your family love the Lord and serve the Lord and minister to the lost and minister to the found. You're here in our midst. And yet, you can have all those privileges and still reject Jesus and still fail to love the Lord Jesus and trust in him and know him genuinely and have no hatred of sin in your heart. See, all the privileges, all the advantages in the world are useless without faith in Jesus. In fact, they're not just useless, they are positively harmful if you reject the truth of the gospel. Because as as James chapter three, verse one says about preachers, about pastors, let not many of you you become preachers, brethren, become teachers. Why? Because you'll be held to a stricter judgment. In the same way, children, youth, to sit under the preaching of the word week in and week out, to go to Sunday school, to go to youth group, to go to RUF, to hear the truth of the gospel and then to reject it. You're even more guilty. And so there's a warning here to not presume upon your privileges. Don't presume upon, don't take for granted the advantages that are yours growing up in the church. Don't think that you can say to to Jesus on the last day, well, but you know my parents, don't you? Jesus will say, yes, I do, but I do not know you. I've never known you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. This text It's a call, not just to you children and youth, but to all who are in this room who are unbelieving. Here you have an opportunity to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Flee from your sin. Flee from your pretended righteousness, your self-righteousness. Flee from your pretended security. Don't be like those people who put the little security sign in their window or at their doorstep. They have no security system, right? You laugh because it's some of you, maybe, right? The point is this, like, that's a fake. It's designed to fake people out. Flee to Jesus, children. Flee to Jesus if you don't know him. See the compassion of Paul and his evangelism. See his grief and his sorrow and realize how serious it is to have so many advantages, so many privileges, and to reject the truth that you have heard day after day after day. So this is Paul's response to the unbelief of the Jews, compassionate grief. But on the other hand, right, that's on the one hand. On the other hand, Paul, in the midst of his sorrow, in the midst of his anguish, also has a conviction of and a confidence in God's election. You see it there in verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, Paul says. Not at all. 
God never promised that every physical descendant of Abraham or every physical descendant of a genuine believer would be saved. Natural descent has never guaranteed salvation. As God has dealt with his people over the years and the centuries, the principle has always been that not all Israel is Israel. You see it there in verse six. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Paul's sounding the same theme that he did at the end of chapter two when he he said that, that he is not a Jew who is one outwardly and nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from men, but from God. Paul's making the same point here. Not all who are externally connected to the people of God are internally connected to the people of God. There have always been two Israels. There's always been a a, a physical people and a spiritual people within that physical people. God has always had a, a people within a people, a physical and a spiritual, a visible church and an invisible church. There's always been a remnant and Paul, to prove his point, gives us two examples, doesn't he here? First, Ishmael and Isaac, and secondly, Jacob and Esau. First, he looks to the children of Father Abraham, quoting from, from Genesis 21 and 18, and he says, look, the Bible tells us, not all children of Abraham, not all are children of Abraham because they're his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means, says Paul, that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Now you remember the childless Abraham at age 86 had one son, Ishmael. But do you remember that after Sarah dies, Abraham remarries a lady named Keturah and he had six more sons. Ishmael and those six sons presumably received the sign of circumcision, but none of those sons were children of Abraham spiritually. None of those sons were children of the promise. None were children of God. Why? Because ancestry alone did not ensure salvation. It was only Isaac who was the recipient of God's promises, who was given faith to believe God's promises, who was born not of human scheming, as Abraham and Sarah did with Hagar, not of sort of natural parentage as Abraham and Keturah did. Hey, normal, I had some babies. But of supernatural power that did something impossible, right? Transcending human abilities to the point that, that Abraham laughed. And so God says, his name will be Isaac. He laughs. You see, the story of Ishmael and Isaac teaches us that the promises of salvation do not come biologically but sovereignly. And that's even more clear in the case of Jacob and Esau. Maybe you would say, well, Isaac and Ishmael, two different moms. One mom's not even a, a wife, right? Hagar, just a servant girl that Abraham slept with. Uh, yeah, that's, that's not really a good argument, Paul. Well, but Jacob and Esau come from one mom, Rebecca, and they're twins. They're twins. And what does Paul say? And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, 
But because of him who calls, Rebekah was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written in Malachi, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Yes, says Paul, the family of Abraham was the chosen race. But from the very beginning, there was, there always has been a chosen minority within the chosen race. And why were some individuals chosen and some not chosen? Well, as we see in Jacob and Esau, the answer is definitely not because of anything inherent in those who are chosen, right? Whether actual good works or foreseen good works, actual faith or foreseen faith, before they were born, Paul says, before they had done anything good or bad, God tells Rebecca, the older will serve the younger. That is, I have chosen Jacob for salvation, but I have not chosen Esau. God's election of Jacob was unconditional, right? That is, it was not based upon any condition in Jacob. No goodness in Jacob. You read the book of Genesis. There is no way you can read the book of Genesis and think, man, Jacob was so much better than Esau was, right? No way. You read and you think, this guy is a scoundrel. It just proves the point, doesn't it? The choice of Jacob over Esau had nothing to do with Jacob and Esau. It was grounded solely in the will of God, the goodness of God, the kindness of God, the grace of God. Why? Paul says, so that God's purpose of election might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. You see, Paul is convinced that election is true. Paul is convinced that God has the right to determine who will receive the blessings of salvation and who will be excluded from those blessings. Or to use the language of Malachi, difficult language, God has the right, Paul is convinced of, to determine whom he will love and whom he will hate. And we read that verse in verse 13 and it startles us. It's a hard verse to accept, isn't it? And I think that's largely because we can't think of hatred without thinking of it in a human way, right? Of human bitterness and animosity and, and strife and spite. We can't think of hatred without thinking of someone who's, you know, holding a grudge and, and is, is bitter and, and wants to, to, you know, get revenge and, and has this sadistic wish to inflict pain on another. We also have a hard time with that verse because we have an unbiblical notion that, that, that God has to love everyone in the same way. To be sure, in Acts 14, we read that, that God is kind to all, that he lavishes upon all rain and food and gladness of heart and, and earthly blessings like friendship and government and order. But the Bible is also clear that God's saving love, his fatherly love, is reserved for the elect alone. And so to say that, that God hates the rest is only to say that God has a holy and a settled opposition and rejection of them. He has judgment determined for them. You see, there is nothing unholy, nothing human about God's hatred of those that he does not choose to save. Now, you might be sitting there listening thinking, this is crazy, ridiculous. I would never believe something like that. Brothers and sisters, I'm not making this up. It's in the Bible, right? Paul is the one who is saying this. We must never forget that 
God is not bound to show grace to anyone. We must never forget that none of us have a claim on God's grace. We are all conceived in sin. We are all guilty by nature. From our mother's womb, we deserve judgment and justice. But in God's sovereign grace, he has decreed to save some, to show mercy to some. And of course, this means that God is not fair in the way we count fairness. That is, everyone getting the same thing. The Bible never teaches that God is fair in that way. But the Bible certainly teaches that God is just. Though some are chosen and some are not, though some are loved and some are hated, though some are saved and some are judged, no one gets injustice. No one gets something that he doesn't deserve, except believers get what we don't deserve because Jesus got what we deserve. As we'll see next week, right, none of us can call God's justice into question. God is free to act however he desires to act in all of his actions, all of his choices are holy and wise and righteous. So this is what Paul is convinced of. This is Paul's conviction as he thinks about those who have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. But these truths you have to see are also his confidence. Believing in the doctrine of election gives Paul confidence. What do I mean? It's because, precisely because Paul knows that God's word will not fail to save and to call in time those whom he has chosen from before the foundation of the world, before time. Because Paul knows that God's word will not fail. Because Paul knows that salvation is not based on works, but based on the sovereign, effectual call of God. Therefore, Paul knows that God can save anyone. He can save anyone. No one is so good that they're beyond the need of God's grace. No one is so bad that they're beyond the reach of God's grace. The gospel comes and says to Paul, Paul, Go forth boldly and preach me, because God has chosen a people for himself. Paul can go forth with confidence, knowing that God will save his people through his word. Now, Paul doesn't know, right, who the elect are. You don't know who the elect are. And, and let me say this, until someone dies, you have no idea whether God has chosen them for salvation. That's why Paul never gives up. He never stops desiring and praying for their salvation and preaching to the lost. He knows that God will save his people. He doesn't know when. He doesn't know who those people are. And neither do we. And so Paul here is saying, I'm going to preach the gospel as freely, as promiscuously as I can. I'm going to scatter that seed because there are some on whom it will fall who are good soil. And why are they good soil? It's not because of them. It's because of God, because of his grace, because his sovereignty. And so when Paul preaches Acts 13, 48, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. How could Paul have this confidence? How could Paul have this conviction? How could he hold together both the compassion and evangelism and the conviction of election, the confidence from election? It's because Paul read the gospels. Right? Paul knew his Savior, Jesus Christ. Matthew 11, 25 to 30. What do we read? What do we see? But that Jesus himself 
held together tightly with two hands, election and evangelism. Listen to Matthew 11, verse 25 says, here's Jesus praying, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. It's the clearest declaration of the truth of election in the whole Bible. But what is the very next thing that Jesus does? He preaches the gospel. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. It, Jesus was able to hold together the truth of election and an evangelistic heart, a compassionate heart, a longing and an inviting and a drawing people to come. And Paul was as well, and we must as well. These two truths are not enemies. To believe in election and to practice evangelism, they go together logically, theologically, in every way. Why? Because God has chosen a people for himself. We don't know who those people are. And so we preach the gospel because he has ordained not just the end, but the means to the end, to use us to bring sinners to himself, sinners that he has chosen from before the foundation of the world. So brothers and sisters, my prayer for you is that you would leave this place with a desire a longing, a praying, a compassion on the lost, and that you would go forth with a great confidence and conviction that God has chosen a people for himself, not based on anything they've done. He's chosen you, not based on anything you've done. And he now wants to use you to bring others to himself. May God make it so. Let's pray. Father, what a powerful text. What a confusing text. What a hard text. And yet, Lord, the truth is, is plain and simple. And we long, oh Lord, to have the heart of Paul, the sorrow of Paul. We long to have the conviction of Paul, the confidence of Paul. Lord, would you be pleased to work these truths, these graces into our hearts, that we might be humbled, oh Lord, by our sin, humbled by our salvation, that we might go forth, with great confidence, knowing that if, if you can save us, the likes of us, you can save anyone. And so, Lord, give us boldness. Give us courage. Lord, give us fruit for our labor that we might see you work and rejoice and be glad and might hear of all the great things that you continue to do through your word and through your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.